We have two scripture passages this morning. The first, Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise, rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The second passage, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Yeah, I've come to uh, love YouTube because you can really find anything on there that you need to fix or do. And, uh, you know, whether you're a cook or whether you're a mechanic, whether you're a seamstress or a woodworker, you can... You can click on and you can follow a good example. I mean, it's somebody doing what you're trying to do. It gives you all kinds of courage to try things you haven't done before, or perhaps correct things that you have done, but you've done them incorrectly. And uh, we need examples. You know, we need people to do things that we can watch and understand. It really helps us to live in this life. Well, you know, this week starts the 22nd year of ministry here that Carol and I have been at Christ Covenant Church. And... Um, the first Sunday we preached when we were here was on the nature of the church. And we did a short series on the church, the glory of the church, the goodness of the church, the, uh, the church as the primary means of God's grace to this world. And um, the vision then was that we would grow in faith and hope and love and we would be all the more ready to see Christ when he comes back and, or when we go to see him, that, that we would be a people that collect ourselves together and seek to be a display of his glory. And the vision really hasn't changed. It's remained the same. And as we look to this passage in Thessalonians, uh, it's a great example. You know, this is the only church in the New Testament that Paul commends, that he holds up as an example to say, this is a church to be like. In fact, it says in chapter 1, I'll be referencing, I'm preaching out of Acts 17, but I'll be referencing Thessalonians to kind of give you an overview of the book. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers. So this Thessalonian church was an example for these new, newly planted churches in, in Greece. So I want to look at Thessalonians with you as one of Paul's earliest letters, probably written in 50, 51 A.D., uh, it's probably the most autobiographical. We learn much about Paul. It's a letter that's probably the, one of the shorter of the New Testament, and it's very easy to follow. Uh, so, so my hope for you is that we're going to be able to kind of peer into uh, a newly planted church 
and to see how God uses this church uh, as he begins to move the gospel into Greece, into Macedonia. Uh, but, but before we get into the Thessalonians, I want to look at Acts 17, because in, in Acts 17, you see the planting of the church. You see how remarkable it is. And then what I want to do is, I want to be able to take this uh, example that is being given to us and then hold ourselves against it and see where we can grow, where we can live. So, so we're going to look at five aspects. I'm just giving you five, not some preachers, I'll give you 12 or 14, but five aspects of what it means uh, to be a commendable church, a, a church to be an example to others. The first thing you see is that this church understood its role. So the church was seeing itself uh, to be the primary means of displaying God's fame. The church, the gathered community, is to display God's fame and his beauty to the world. Now look with me in verse 1. In Acts 17, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, let me remind you of where we are in Acts. Uh, so in Acts 13 and 14, Paul had taken his first missionary journey. He went to Asia Minor and was planting churches in the Middle East. Uh, in 13 and 14, Gentiles were beginning to come into this church that was initiated by all Jews. Right? In Acts 15, they call the first council. The, the Christian leaders in Jerusalem say, hey, what are we going to do? You know, we thought we were Jews, now there's Jews and Gentiles. How do we handle this question? In Acts 16 and 17, Paul goes on his second missionary journey. And on this second journey, he's going to strengthen the churches that he has already planted. But what happens is remarkable. It moves the church to the shores of Europe. So let me read you from Acts 16, because Paul has a vision from God. And he says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia, that's Greece, was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when God had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So do you see what's happening? This shift changed the whole Western world. God is now moving the gospel onto the shores of Europe, planting it right in Macedonia. So Paul obeyed the vision. And he went, you see him go to uh, Philippi in chapter 16. He meets Lydia, she's converted. The Philippian jailer's converted. A church is planted there. And then, then he goes to Amphipolis and Apollonia. Uh, these are smaller towns, about a 100-mile journey, and he goes to Thessalonica and plants a church there. Thessalonica is a huge city. It's a major city. It's the capital of Macedonia. There's a major road that the Romans had built from Rome to the east where the military would travel, politics would travel, commercial interests would travel. It was a huge center of influence. Why did Paul go there? People think, why didn't he preach the gospel in Apollonia? Well, Paul went to strategic centers of influence. He'd plant the church there. God's fame would be declared there, even on this major road, so that this fame would go to the ends of the world. And, and by the way, when the church was planted in Thessalonica, then those people could then begin to evangelize the smaller towns around them. So what we see here is that Paul is planting the church in a major center, so that God's name and fame might be declared. And you see, that's what happened. If you see in the first chapter of Thessalonians, in verse 8, it says, For not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere. So this church was beginning to declare the glory of God to the nations, which is the purpose of the church. 
Do you see that? I mean, do you see the incredible value in the nature of the church? That the task, the primary task of the church is to declare God's glory. It's a vision of this church. We're going to love God's glory. You see it all through the New Testament. I mean, think with me for just a minute. So in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, and he says, he says, go into all the world making disciples. That's what he says, go into all the world. He calls the apostles, go into the world. But what do the apostles do? They start planting churches. Uh, I mean, Peter preaches in Jerusalem, and a church is birthed, and the church begins to grow in, the, in Jerusalem, the surrounding areas. And then you see it begin to spread. In Acts chapter 10, it goes to the Gentiles. You see in 13 and 14, Paul take it north up into Asia Minor. Then you see 16 and 17, it jump over to Greece. And then you see later on in Acts, it goes to Rome, and then it goes to Spain. I mean, this is the intent that God has, that through the planning of churches, that individual churches, local assemblies, of, he's not talking about the universal church here, all these local assemblies are going to be like little points of light uh, that display God's glory. And Paul said this in Ephesians. He said that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. When I mean the manifold wisdom of God, I'm not saying, hey, God's a really smart guy. I hope you see that. The wisdom of God is in his plan where he is holy. We are not. He's going to reconcile us through the giving of a Messiah to save us from our sins. That's the wisdom. of That's how he, a perfect God, can reconcile himself to an imperfect people and do it in a way where he's both just and the justifier of those who have sinned. This is the wisdom of God. We're to make it known. So to be a commendable church, how are you participating in this church's life in making his fame known? Doesn't mean you go to overseas work, which if you're called to do that, we want to support it and encourage it. Uh, but it may just mean discipling another person in this church. It may be you gathering some friends in this church praying for you as you make a greater effort to just speak to the things of God with your neighbor. We're in a perfect context now where people are quite scared. They're uncertain about the future. There's all this polarization. And pol it's a wonderful time to be able to introduce the sovereign hand of God working even through the goofiness of men and women on this earth. So the first facet of a commendable church is that we understand his fame is being declared through this church. And we play a part. We participate in that. The second thing I want you to see is that the church that's commendable is founded on the word of God. It's founded on the scriptures themselves. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. He says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So here Paul goes into Thessalonica, goes to the synagogue, and he begins to reason with them for three, for three Sabbaths. Now we don't know if it's three weeks or three months. My gut would be that it's longer than three weeks. And the reason I say that is because in chapter 2, Paul's going to reference how he worked hard among them. We're going to see a lot of Greeks were brought into the church, which seems to imply he had a Jewish mission in the synagogue, but he also went and evangelized in the marketplace. So let's say he's there from three weeks to three months. The point of it is, when he was there, he reasoned with them. That Greek word for reason is just a dialogue. 
He argued, he presented arguments, he listened, he discussed, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So what he did was he would explain. See, to the Jewish mind, a Messiah coming could only come in kind of triumphal entrance. They couldn't understand a suffering Messiah. How could the servant of God suffer? He's a servant of God. And so it was a paradigm shift. What he did was he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He showed them. In fact, that word to prove means to set alongside. That he would put the scriptures, he was explaining, no, this Messiah, by necessity, is going to suffer for sins. He's going to die. He has to die because he has to bear the curse. But he's going to be raised to life, and he's going to start a new order of life. And what he did was then he began to set alongside those teachings with the scriptures. Maybe he turned to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we read about this, son, this servant of the Lord. He's going to bear the transgressions of people that by his stripes were going to be healed. Maybe he turned to Psalm 22. This servant of the Lord is going to be forsaken by God and is going to be crucified and die. Maybe he turned to Zechariah 12. The one upon whom they look is going to be pierced. Maybe he turned to Psalm 16, that the Father will not let the body of the Holy One decay, speaking to the resurrection of the Son. So he probably lined up these scriptures, and he says all this promise that this Messiah would suffer and die and be raised, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus of Nazareth has fulfilled these promises of God. That's probably what he did. He reasoned with them. It's what Jesus did, right? I mean, in Luke 24... When Jesus was raised, he walked with those disciples on the, way, on the road to Emmaus, and here's what he said. He said, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So that's what Paul's doing. His evangelism, he's planning this church, and he was building it on the very very word of God. You know, you're going to find in the first two chapters of Thessalonians, he's going to reference nine times how they were being built on the word of God. The scriptures are the basis of the church. A commendable church is rooted on the scriptures. Now, listen, this is a temptation for preachers to be innovative, to be slick, to be funny, to be relevant. I'm not saying all those things are necessarily bad. I just want you to see that that for the church to thrive, it can never be based on a personality or a style. It has to ultimately be rooted in the Word of God. So when we go through Thessalonians, you're not going to see Paul reference his testimony. I love hearing testimonies. Testimonies are wonderful acts of God's grace. But testimonies don't always lead people to understand that only in Jesus can our moral guilt be forgiven. And our testimonies don't always explain how the resurrection of Christ removes from us the fear of death. So testimonies are fine, but the scriptures have to be the basis of the church. Likewise, uh, you see Paul working with the mind. Paul doesn't make these emotional appeals, trying to get you to cry, trying to get you to lie. He's reasoning with them. He's appealing to your intellect so you both understand what the faith is about. We need to understand. We have to love the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, and our mind, our mind as well. So when you think, in fact, Ask yourself, when you come to church, uh, how do you listen to the preaching of the word? How, how do you listen to the scriptures? 
when you look back over your life in the last six months, when was the last time you made a change uh, by following the word? You know, John Calvin wrote about, you know, he, he tried to answer the question, why does God have to use a preacher? Why does he have to use a minister? Why can't he just speak himself? And Calvin says these words, he says, uh, because he doesn't dwell among us in visible presence. In other words, God's not visible to the eye. We've said that he uses the ministry of men to declare openly his will to us by mouth as a sort of delegated work, not by transferring to them his right and honor, but only that through their mouths he may do his own work, just as a workman uses a tool to do his work. For among the many excellent gifts which God has adorned the human race, it is a singular privilege that he deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and the tongues of men, in order that his voice may resound in them. So how do you hear the word? When you guys experience conviction by the word or encouragement, does it change you? What was the last thing that you can point to that you heard the word or you read the word and you made a change to your life? Uh, the church will not survive unless we're not just hearing it, but we're actually doing the word as well. That's a commendable church, like the Bereans. They hear the word, they study it, and they go do it. Okay, the third aspect of a commendable church is that there is a vibrant act of faith. Notice with me how they responded to Paul's preaching in verse 4. Look at what they did with it. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women. I love the constitution of the church. It says, and some of them were persuaded. Some of them, it, most likely Jewish, um, uh, Jewish people from the synagogue, but many devout Greeks. Not just devout Greeks, but also some leading women. You have this quick birth of a church that's men and women, that's Jewish and Greek. So it's a very diverse group. But it says that they were persuaded. In other words, they believed. It says they were persuaded and they joined. They joined. They joined this church that was being planted. They assembled themselves together. And they said, we're now together as these believers in Christ. And when you read through the first chapter of Thessalonians, you're going to see the fruit of what it means to be persuaded. In other words, it says that they, were, they uh, believed the word. In verse 4, he says, We know, brothers, loved of God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the spirit, and with full conviction. To be persuaded to believe means that you've been convicted by the Spirit of God, that you see him as a creator to whom you owe your allegiance, and you see yourself as a sinner, fallen far from him, needing a rescuer to bring you back to him. That's what it means to be fully convicted. But, but they weren't just persuaded with conviction, they were also persuaded with joy. It says in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says that they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Spirit. So even though they were being persecuted, they were still happy in having been reconciled with God. And it says in verse 9 that they turned from serving idols to serving the living and the true God. These are evidences of active faith. You know, too many times I think we think of faith as this ambiguous, kind of mystical, like what is faith? It's kind of... It's kind of ethereal. You can't really get your hands around it. That's not true. Faith is very concrete. 
It involves the mind that you understand the contents of the gospel. Remember, the Bible is both a book of theology, but also anthropology. It speaks to us about God, and it speaks to us about us. And, and it teaches us who we are in relationship to God, and the fact that we need to be, to be delivered from, our, from ourselves, really, and brought to God. So faith has content to it. It has propositional truth. It's not whatever you think, it's what God has said about himself. But faith is also the affections. It involves the heart. They were persuaded. They were convicted. They were filled with joy. Uh, they were happy to turn their lives away from idolatry to serve the living God. You know, Jonathan Edwards was a great preacher in the 18th century, and in 1744 he gave this ordination sermon. And he said to, he said to the church, he said, here's what a preacher is. A, a preacher both shines and burns. He shines and burns. The preacher is to shine, he is to display and declare the greatness of God so that your minds are engaged and you're learning more and more about the things of God. That's why we're going through a whole book of the Bible from start to finish so that you're better, you know, you have greater knowledge of God and of his son Christ. That's where eternal life is. So he's to shine forth truth, but the preacher is also to burn, to burn that your hearts are set aflame with greater and greater affections that you love the Lord Christ that you're not just seeking to follow him kind of white-knuckled obedience because you have to, otherwise it may be a, a bad day when you... But you love him. You just love the fact that he would take on flesh and live among us and bear our curse, our shame, our guilt. And then before the Father, experience the forsakenness that we should have experienced so that we might be his joy. I mean, our hearts need to be changed. And when our affections change then holiness begins to walk in our lives. Godly change comes from the affections. The mind is informed, the heart is stimulated to burn, and then godly actions follow godly affections. That way, you're not always white-knuckling. You're choosing to want to be holy because you love God and you love His Son Christ. So this is a mark of a commendable church. Their faith is vibrant. It's not simply, I know what I need to know to make sure that I don't go to hell. That is not salvation. No, to know what you need to know is to set your heart aflame with joy in God and all that he's done for us so that we might then live in the holiness that is part of his character. And as we're being made in the image of God, we grow holy like he is holy. Okay, that's the third characteristic, is that vibrant faith. Okay, the fourth aspect of a commendable church is that the church grows in opposition. It grows in opposition. Look with me at verse 5. In verse 5, we see that. He says, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So what we see here is the church grows in opposition. This shouldn't be new to us if you've read the Bible. Right? So as the church gets planted, Paul knew that the gospel was transformational and it was confrontational. Uh, the, the Bible, when you live according to the scriptures, you're going to face opposition. Pisidian Antioch, Paul was thrown out of there. Lystra, Paul experienced conflict. He was jailed in Philippi. He was thrown out of Thessalonica. He was chased out of Berea. And these are cities that the Spirit of God sent him to. And he's facing opposition. That's what these, these kind of 
jealous. By the way, notice that their disbelief is not rooted in evidence. It's not like rooted, we can prove the resurrection is not true. There is no evidence, it's moral. They are jealous of him. They're intimidated by him. Maybe he was too persuasive. Maybe he was too good of a preacher. I don't know what they were jealous over, but they were probably jealous over losing those converts. And so they stir up a crowd, and they try to find, Jay, they try to find Paul and Silas. They can't find him, so they grab Jason. And Jason was probably one of the first converts in Thessalonica. And they take him, and they haul him before the magistrates, before the courts. And uh, he has to post bail, but the church continues to face opposition. Paul then leaves at night with Silas, and he travels to Berea. He's chased out of Berea. He goes to Athens, and he sends Timothy from Athens. God bless Paul. He's concerned. He sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the church. And then Timothy hooks back up with him. And they did this all without smartphones, just by the way. Uh, he hooks back up with Paul in Corinth and tells him, how great they're doing in the midst of conflict, in the midst of opposition. So if we're going to be a commendable church, we have to recognize that we as the church will face opposition. We will face opposition. I mean, notice that this rabble that these Jewish people got together to cause an uproar, they said, hey, these people are turning the world upside down. And the, the faith of Christianity is, it is revolutionary. There's no doubt about it. It has uplifted the role of women. It's, up, it, it, it's brought together races. It, it's done an amazing work to bring about order and joy to society. But notice what they got right. They got one thing right. They said they're talking about another king, Jesus. Now this, I think, is what brings opposition. When you want to follow King Jesus, then you're going to run headlong into the culture. So what does King Jesus say about our sexuality, about marriage, about money? Oh, that brings us into conflict oftentimes with what the culture now says about, about sexuality and money and marriage and the like. And following King Jesus is going to draw us into points of conflict. I don't know that we in America will ever experience a level of opposition and the level of conflict that many of our brothers and sisters are right now. I don't know that we ever will. But I do think that the mockery and the marginalization will increase. We live in a cancel, cancel culture now. It's going to be banging on the doors of this church at one point. You can't say that, you can't say that, you can't say that. And so I, I do think we will be facing an increasing level of that. We just need to be prepared for it. We need to be aware of it. And is King Jesus truly our king? And it's going to bring us into a measure of conflict. I, I'm not intimidated by it, but I'd be foolish to not be aware of it and to be girding up my loins, knowing the things of God, considering the glory of Christ. Is he worth it? Yes, I think he is. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, we're in, a, we're in a bit of a conflict now, right? We have this bit of conflict with our own government. They're kind of giving us some practical wisdom about how we ought to worship. And when, can we worship and can we not worship? And, and the scripture, of course, calls us to gather together. What do we do with this? Been of a bit of a, a dust-up within evangelicalism over this issue right here. Do we gather together? How do we gather together? I want you to understand that, you know, we have, uh, when it's interesting because when these rabble-rousers were saying they are denying the decrees of Caesar, Paul's not giving a new political theory here. Paul's not speaking about um, you know, how we intersect with the government. Uh, Paul and Peter both speak to that in Romans 13, and in 1 Peter 2, uh, they speak about that we are, as citizens of this country, to obey the government. 
uh, to submit to their authority. And, and God has given them that right. But the scriptures also tell us that we need to gather together and we're to be free in our gathering together. So what do we do in these contexts where we have two calls to obedience and they seem to be in tension with one another? Now, some want to say, well, the state has jurisdiction over the state, and the church has jurisdiction over the church, and the two don't mix. And the you know, state can't say anything to the church, and the church can't say anything to the state. It's not true. Well, well it's, it needs to be nuanced, I would say. You know, the state has jurisdiction over the issues of the state, which are to keep public order, to maintain public safety. We have a pandemic. So the state does have a right to say these things. The church has a right to say also how we worship. Uh, but the two are intention. It's not so clean. You can't just say the state can't say that. You know, so a family has its own right. The father and mother have parental rights over the children. But if they are breaking the law, if they are bringing harm to the children, the state has a has a right to break into that jurisdiction and speak to the parents about how they're doing it. So there is some conflation in these areas of, of jurisdiction. So what do we do? Well, we need prayer and wisdom. We as a leadership are trying to balance a desire to be obedient to the government as much as we can, and yet we want to obey the word of God as he calls us to gather together. That's why we're having three services. We're trying to do what God wants us to do at the same time, display to God. We trust that in your sovereignty, you're going to even work through the, the failed efforts of men and women in state and local and federal government. So you need to pray for us. We're meeting on Thursday night this week, elders calling the deacons, the staff, as well as other ministry leaders, uh, director of women's ministry and children's ministry, and we want to pray. And we want to say, God, we want to honor you on all levels, in all ways. We need wisdom how to do this. We don't want to rush to judgment. We don't want to rush to a conflict that we can possibly avoid by striving to honor both the government and honor. But we need prayer. So I'd ask you for that. We want to do it with humility, and we want to do it well. Okay, so that's opposition. Okay, the fourth aspect of a commendable church you see there, I'm going to jump now to the first verse in 1 Thessalonians, uh, that a commendable church sees itself as the family of God. This is really essential. Look with me back at verse 1 of chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians. He says, Paul, Silvanus. Silvanus is just the Latinized form of Silas. And Timothy, he says, To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. This is really uh, interesting here. You know, Paul is writing, uh, he addresses, notice that he's with, he's naming his companions in this missionary endeavor. Paul's not a me, me, me guy. He's doing it as a team. And he addresses these Christians as the church. Now, church just means assembly. It can be political, it can be secular, it can be religious. It's a gathering, it's a local Again, he's not talking about the universal church here. He's talking about a local gathering of Christians to the Christians in Thessalonica. It, 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 these Christians of the Thessalonians. Now he says to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just notice for a minute that here early in the church you see the deity of Jesus right? It's the Lord Jesus. That Greek word for Lord is used 
uh, at least in its Hebrew form in the Old Testament, for God. So very early in the church, we see that they, they view Jesus Christ as equal to, different from, but equal to the Father. God the Father, God the Son. So many times you hear a person say, well, Trinity is not in the Bible. And the Trinity was a second, maybe third century invention. Not so. You see it here within 25 years of the death and resurrection of Christ. You see that the church assumed, no, it's God the Father and it's God the Son. And in verse 6, we'll get to God the Holy Spirit. So you see the Trinity right there. But what I want you to see for the point of the church has to be a family is that it says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father. Do you notice the difference? It's always the church of God. But this church is in God. What does he mean by that? Well, I, I think what he's saying is he's not talking about a spatial kind of in, like we're somehow in. He's talking about the nature of the relationship we have with God. The, the nature of the relationship we have with God, it, it's not judicial, it, it's not clinical, it's not distant, it's familial. It, it's we participate and have communion. We have life in him. In other words, it's like a branch to a tree. The branch has no existence apart from its connection to the tree. Do you see yourselves as having this kind of relationship with God? You know, to have this kind of relationship with God is the source of meeting your greatest needs, your greatest needs of security and significance, importance, forgiveness, mercy. T to think of God what Paul's saying to the Thessalonians is, when you're part of a church, you are together related to God as a branch is to a tree. That mercy and love and compassion are constantly available to us in our relationship with God. Do you see God as a father of that nature? You know, J.I. Packer was a great theologian. Probably the last 70 years he's been... Uh, like one of the Puritans, as he said, a kind of a redwood of the faith, a massive force in evangelicalism. He died recently, and he wrote in his book, Knowing God, uh, something about the fatherhood of God that I always find instructive, and I find it very challenging. He says these words. He says, you sum up the whole New Testament religion. And what he's saying is you take the whole New Testament, you sum it up if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If this is the measure by which you would assess yourself in terms of your understanding of the faith, by virtue of how much the thought that God as your father prompts, controls, and leads you to look at life as a whole. What would it say about your understanding of the Christian faith? I don't ask you that so that you feel convicted. I'm asking you that to show you where to find peace and joy and satisfaction that, that we as a church uh, need to, the, a commendable church at least, is one where we come in, we understand that together we are children of God and that God has a love for us. I know you may have failed miserably this week. I know you may have struggled reading your Bible. I know you may have struggled with anger, bitterness, lust, envy. 
But to be able to come to your Heavenly Father and say, I've failed. Just as Josh confessed, we, we have slipped into idolatry. We have failed, but God is just like if you're a parent and your child comes to you. And they say, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I did that. Would you be standing back like this? I don't know that you are. And, and would you be putting them through the paces to make sure? No, I mean, you, you, your heart would begin to melt immediately. You want to be reconciled. God wants us to come to him with all of our sin and all of our shame. And, and over and over, repentance is something, you know, one theologian said, it's like taking out the garbage. You don't do it once in your lifetime. I do it in our house every other day. Take it, that's what repentance is. We come to God. So, how, Do you understand God as a father? Because if we really understand God as a father, we're now going to look at each other differently. We're going to see each other as brothers and sisters. We're not going to have cliques. We're not going to have little certain groups of people that we hang around. We're going to be considering one another here as essential for our well-being. We're really going to love one another. We're going to sacrifice for one another. So when you have a people that see themselves as children of God, and then by virtue of being, having the same father, we are brothers and sisters to one another, eternally related, much closer than your biological connections outside the faith. I mean, can you imagine the joy that we have? The security that we have that when we do face opposition, we find comfort and strength from one another here? It's incredible. I mean, I think what Thessalonians is going to do for us is it's going to help us to love the church to love the church, to love one another. And Marshall Siegel is a writer of Desiring God Ministry. And in his article, he says, this article is titled, What Does He See in Her? That is, what does Jesus see in the church? The church in the eyes of Christ, he, he says, excuse me, the title is, What Does He See in Her? The Church in the Eyes of Christ. He says, how we think about the church reveals how much we really know the heart of Christ. So, so let this description of the church be a good point of analysis for you and how well do we understand the heart of Christ. We want to be a commendable church. I mean, we, want, we want to be a church that sees itself as we are to declare the fame of God, this local church, that we are to be built on the word of God, that when you hear it, you're adjusting your life accordingly, that you're, you're, you're hearing the words of Scripture as, as if God were speaking to you that we, we pursue a vibrant faith that seeks to draw the head and the heart together, uh, that we will expect opposition and we will face it together, and that we see ourselves as a family in this world and in this life. We are pilgrims together. That's what the nature of the church is. So let's take a moment now and just ask God for grace to understand these things, to walk in light of them. Uh, if we need conviction, God, bring it to our souls. For those of you, perhaps you're just looking at the faith, you don't know that your head and heart are connected. Ask God to make that clear to you. You know, he says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. That's a good thing to do. And let's ask God for grace that we might be a family together. As we study this book, let our hearts be drawn together. Let's take a minute and silently pray, and then I'll close this in just a moment.